Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of She Did What? So this well, I love week, that we have to look at each other when we say that. Well, we want it to be in it's sync, funny. right? So this week we're going to do, we're going to finish the second half of a two-part show. If you haven't listened to the first half, you should go back and do that right now. Last week we introduced radical black feminist and activist Florence, a.k.a. Flo Kennedy. Uh, we talked about the first half of her active career fighting both racism and sexism. At a young age, she participated in her first boycotts and sit-ins until she realized she could make more headway in the courtroom. So she decided to study law. She went to Columbia's sister school and then was one of the first black women to obtain a law degree. Yeah, so she started her own practice and she took on smaller cases until she became the legal representation for Billie Holiday as well as uh, Charlie Parker's estate once they died, which catapulted her into the world of entertainment law, and she was responsible for some of the first laws protecting artists and their earnings. And now we take you through her activism, lecturing, and involvement in both the black power and women's liberation movements, and most importantly, practicing intersectionality by trying to integrate both movements against the biggest oppressor, a white government. This is the most active part of Flo's career. So although we have a lot of information for you, we strongly encourage you to check our sources and learn more about this really amazing and super badass woman, including the Flo Kennedy show, which she hosted uh, a little later in her life and we, which you will hear some of today. Yeah. So in the last episode, we, we talked about her early childhood, growing up in the South, moving to New York with her sister, and we, that brought us up to about 1965. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going to pick up today. So in 1965, there was an event that happened, which unfortunately happens to um, just a lot of black people in general, an unjustified police interaction. So a gas explosion happened in her neighborhood. She was at, you know, the police line saying, here's my ID. I need to get in my house. They said no. But what happened was these white men started walking by. Oh, yeah, John, go ahead. And she, you know, was like, what the hell is this? This is my house. This is my neighborhood. She was at a bus or like just a bunch of guys that walked through. And so she was like, screw this. I'm walking with them. And then she gets manhandled from that group. Yeah, she gets pulled apart by the police who didn't believe that she, a middle-aged black woman right. lived in this rather elite white neighborhood. with an id with an id yeah she lived in this neighborhood but they didn't believe her and so what they did was they actually forced her to strip in a squad car um and they made her spread her legs and uh then they charged her with obstructing justice even though she had done absolutely nothing wrong she was just trying to get to her apartment right she was obviously extremely upset and for good reason she told her story to as many reporters as would listen to her and she even threatened to sue the police station for five hundred thousand dollars and this incident kind of changed shifted her perspective um, and further confirmed what she had intellectually known all along was that even though she was a well-to-do lawyer living in a nice neighborhood her blackness made her a target of oppression so she was found guilty on these charges of obstructing justice she made appeals her whole life and she ended up dying with a charge of obstructing justice like even though she was a lawyer they were the ones obstructing justice right and so very safe to say this was her pivot so she slowly started realizing that by being a lawyer and kind of fighting discrimination that way that it was only one case at a time mm -hmm. and we will get back into kind of changing the way she did handle cases when she chose which ones because it's it's very interesting so in 1966, Flo started the media workshop. It was during this time 
that she realized the media is a big problem with discrimination and racism. Mm -hmm. So she fought tirelessly to help racial representation in the media. She went after Benton and Bowles, one, just one company she went after, uh, for not hiring a fair amount of black people, considering that their advertisements targeted lower income in black neighborhoods, you know, communities of color in general, so that they're giving them their money, but there's no people of color actually working there. Right. There were there was no representation. Uh, so she helped organize a boycott against the advertising company to hire more people of color. And also she pushed them to hold a fundraiser in the areas that they targeted for advertising, which I think is cool. Because of that, other companies started following Benton and Bell's lead, even though we shouldn't give them too much credit right? because they had to be forced to do it. So not only were, you know, these media companies starting to hire more people of color, although they were at entry level positions, it's not like they're hiring executives. Right. But, you know progress. She was very critical of the media's portrayal of black power movements, which she was becoming more and more involved in following this very traumatic experience. In addition, the portrayal of politicians during their election seasons, you know, as more people of color started running, both men and women, mm -hmm. uh, black men and women. And in a specific instance, the biased coverage of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who, if you remember, he was one of the first figures that she became aware of when she moved to New York. So he was, if you don't know who that is, uh, he was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for New York State. So he'd been elected to that position in 1945, but his seat was up for re-election in the fall of 1966. So, you know, there's this whole campaign, him against him, because there's not many women. Right. Yeah. And so what happened was all congressmen are corrupt. There's just corruption in politics. And what happened was the media was choosing to exploit Powell Jr.'s, how do you say that, like uh, controversial decisions? Yeah. Well, what it was is that he was accused of, you know, hiring relatives, so some nepotism right. and just, just sort of... Flo's point being that everyone did that. Right. right. And everybody did do it. Right. So she's like, hey... I'm not saying this isn't true, but, you know, you need to hold everyone responsible if you're going to choose to talk about this. Yeah. You so know? all congressmen and, and arguably people in power were some of them were they were putting their family members on payroll, using government funds for vacations. But the reason she thought they were really targeting Powell is because of his involvement on the periphery of the growing black power movement. So Powell had hosted a planning meeting for the black power conference in a government building with federal guards manning the door. And it was only after that that the attacks and the attempts to limit his power really became more serious. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the people that attacked Powell was a Democratic congressman from Florida, Sam Gibbons. So Flo, which this is a tactic she had used before, as we were just talking about, mm -hmm. she called for a boycott of all Florida citrus fruit. So Flo's attack on the media was just about representation, and we're still fighting this today. She also pointed out the tokenism of black representation. Which is still you know. something, and maybe this is getting sidetracked, but when you when you see, like, mainstream films or television shows, there will be, like, one person of color. And As just the best one. friend or the funny one or the right. gangster. Right, right. They're rarely the lead, and right. there's never, like, more than one person in the group. So now we get to the National Organization of Women. That is an organization that was formed in 1966. Flo attended the first meeting of the New York chapter of NOW. We're just going to call it NOW from now on. Betty Friedan, 
uh, was one of the organization's founders, and she had also written The Feminist Mystique. And she had expressed that she wanted now to do for women what the NAACP had done for African-Americans. But what she failed to see is that the goals of each of these organizations didn't need to be mutually exclusive. Right, which we introduced last show, obviously, that that was Flo's main thing. Yeah, intersectionality. That right. is the like most quintessential right. thing about her activism, really. The thing about the NOW organization is it was not only created and run by white women, um, but they these white women also blatantly tried to like physically silence Flo during the meetings when she would bring up anti-war or black power agendas. They did not have any interest in demanding equality for all women and essentially they were huge hypocrites. This did not stop Flo from expressing her thoughts and ideas during these meetings, however. I mean, we're literally talking. She would be like, sure, but what about, you know, Yeah. why don't you guys show up for this black power movement? Right. And then they'll be more inclined to come to your movements. Why are we treating these as separate issues? And this happened in every meeting. Most times she was one of the only black women. And so, you know, she persisted. She kept raising her hand. So the, the first year um, that the New York chapter was meeting... Yeah, she was the only black woman really to show up to meetings uh, consistently, the only black feminist. Mm -hmm. And when she would suggest that women should unite against the Vietnam War or protest racism at NBC, she was shut down by the leadership. But what she realized is, and the reason she kept bringing it up, is she realized that by planting the seeds of these thoughts in the minds of feminist activists, they would... Um, eventually kind of get that idea. So she would show up at feminist rallies with a briefcase covered in anti-war stickers and hand out information about the Black Power movement as well, hoping that the the passion that these young feminists had, like the fire that they had, would carry over and sort of spread out into other movements. Right. She got very involved in the Black Power movements. And it was at the same time, like coinciding with this now meetings. So this is like 1967. Right that a Black Power conference was held and organized, and Florence was a huge part of it, and she was a, like a keynote speaker. Yeah. Uh, even though most of the organizers argued the need for Black nationalism, Flo saw the potential of the movement to unite all marginalized people against a common oppressor. So while she was speaking, actually, this is interesting, there was a commotion at the back of the room, and two white women had showed up. They were being asked very loudly to leave the conference to get the hell out. Mm -hmm. Kennedy recognized them as now members, T. Grace Atkinson and Peg Brennan, and she had invited them. So the woman who had been loudly asking these two white ladies to leave was like, how could you possibly invite white women to this Black Power conference? Right. Somebody even, I guess, shouted out in the audience that they should kill Flo for, for bringing them and Flo, because she took no shit and was totally a badass, said, do what you have to do. I've lived my life. <laughs> and uh, those two women stayed. But she she kept inviting uh, white feminists to black power meetings and to um, going forward. So she defended her white guests, you know, so they could stay in the conference. They did stay. I think T. Grace stayed, right? Because she becomes a big ally. Yeah. Only one of them stayed. Obviously, the point is she had brought them in to just start closing the gap between the black and white agenda. Conference led to more um, groups led by people of color. And Florence made the rounds. I mean, she visited probably every organization that was in New York trying to talk to, you know, 
more white led feminist movements about the black agenda, black power movements about it's it's not even like the, the black and white. It's also just against war, against, right. you know, the imperialism. Right. It's just everything, you know. So even when her white invitees were rebuffed at black power meetings, she thought it was a good lesson for them actually to face black rejection uh, because it is something that the opposite happens all the time. Right. So she also invited male and female leaders of the black power movement to speak at a now meeting uh, of the a meeting of the New York chapter, which interesting there. It was seen from different perspectives by different people. So there were some notes taken by the person who did their minutes for the meeting. But this woman kind of wrote down she basically blew off like the speakers. There were a couple different men and then two women who were speaking from the Black Power Movement. T. Grace Atkinson recounts it in a different way. She says, you know, they did actually seem interested in asking about, like, what the women's movement wanted. However, one of the men did ask why they wore miniskirts, saying, like, is that your uniform? And that the Black Power Movement was very focused on what they wore as an expression of their revolutionary ideals. So Mm -hmm. they did question why the women were wearing miniskirts again, which is not great, but, you know, it's a question, so... Moving forward. It's also important to know that this around this time is when the FBI started to collect surveillance on Flo Kennedy. This doesn't really like come to a head. It's not like they came and busted her or anything, but you'll learn that it's actually really important and interesting how much information the FBI was collecting on really all of these civil rights activists. So Flo surveillance uh, by the FBI started becoming more detailed when she represented H. Rap Brown, who was a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee after his unlawful arrest. H. Rap Brown was accused of inciting a riot in Cambridge, and while he was being officially charged and those were going through, he was flying across state lines, and when he landed, he was arrested for carrying a gun. But that gun was registered with the airline, and he was just flying home to Louisiana from Maryland. So even though those charges were put in place, while he was mid-flight, right, they still then arrested him for carrying a gun across state lines. So Flo defended him in court, pointing out the bias charge, considering he was found not guilty of the original inciting violence charge. So it's like, you know, it's a never-ending pit they put people in. This is also when Flo started to realize that the bail industry was also very biased, not allowing the same access to bonds as white people. And if they did, there was bigger interests. So as you can tell, this is when Flo started losing faith in the judicial system and realized that she got taken to the streets. Well, she did still keep it in the courtrooms, too, but she was more selective. Yeah, yeah. So the next case, big, you know, controversial case was when she developed Valerie defended Valerie Solanus, who shot Andy Warhol following a string of events dealing with her work, her writings, and her feeling that time and time again he was taking advantage of her. So Valerie Solanus had written a really militant feminist book called Scum Manifesto, uh, in which she argued that since society didn't have much of a place for women that women should overthrow the government, eliminate the monetary system, and start killing men. Mm-hmm. Um, Solanus blames men for totally ruining the world, says all of them should be killed, that, you know, they would break up male and female couples. It's like, it's some pretty, pretty radical stuff. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when I was looking it up, it, some scholars have said that p- perhaps it was a satire and that the really aggressive way 
that she talks about like systematically eliminating men might be mirrored on the way that white male oppression systematically silences and eliminates like other people that's something maybe we could look into in the future (laughs) so why did she actually shoot andy warhol everybody blamed it on her being a man-hating radical feminist but warhol had lost one of her manuscripts you know she wrote this thing sent it to warhol he kind of jacked her around a little bit and then was like oh i lost it and then he tried to pull one over on her quietly taking claim of a playwright that she had written so after all of these events she showed up one day She shot at him three times. One of them hit him. Florence decided to take her case, framing the event as an act of radical feminism against a man who took advantage of women. This whole event upset Betty Friedan, who, if you remember, was one of the white women who... uh, Founded now the National Organization of Women. And had silenced Flo in the past. So she was upset because she didn't want this radical man-hating feminist associated with the movement. She thought that Solanus's work was like too incendiary and like too aggressive. Betty Friedan is, you know, I'm realizing her as like one of the moderate white women that's like really dangerous for yeah, that's you know, not equality. to say. I don't want to say that she didn't do that. She did nothing for right, the right. feminist movement. Obviously, she was a strong ally of women. Um, but this is when, yeah, like she starts denouncing Flo. Yeah, like personally. You know, which we'll talk about later, why Flo isn't in our history books, blah, blah, blah. During this time, younger women uh, were becoming more radical than, say, the now organizations and aligning more with black power ideas of fighting violence with violence. This is where eye for an eye starts coming in. And Florence's ally, T. Grace Atkinson, who had been at the black power conference, she actually became president of now, which was problematic for little Betty Friedan. Yeah. So Florence was becoming the force behind radical feminists. She started aligning herself more with younger women who were more inclined to be intersectional. Mm -hmm. These women organized protests for all kinds of causes. uh, But a major one at this time was the Colgate Palmolive Company protest because they wouldn't hire women following, you know, the labor laws of the Industrial Revolution. They said that because they couldn't work more than eight hours under these labor laws, that they didn't want them working at all. Because like, what if you have to work overtime? I don't want to get sued. Right. So it's just an excuse. That's like if you get a paper cut and you just cut your hand off. Right. Well, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, They created a huge spectacle, uh, bringing a wide array of attention to the protests and the demands of workers. They would like throw soap and just made a scene. Yeah. Flo loved protesting. She was really into it. She says that um, she thought that it should be fun and it shouldn't be dreary and just like the, you know, quiet chanting and carrying signs. They would sing and carry like brightly colored signs it was almost sort of theatrical you can actually watch some videos of her protesting online they carry these bright signs there's people in costumes and she was intentionally loud because she knew that making a spectacle of things would draw more people to see the protest and make it more likely for them to get on the news which was so smart very very smart so this is also the time that the uh, big miss america protest was happening um in 1968 it, it's mostly known as a white or a feminist move, uh, protest, I should say. I guess a white feminist protest because what isn't talked about is the racism that was involved in these pageants. Pageants. I almost said competition. It is kind of a competition against women. Until two years after this protest, actually, contestants could 
this is, you know, in the registration, could be only of the white race. So during the demonstration, they were throwing feminine products in a trash can because they couldn't get a permit for burning things. So they were throwing fake eyelashes, girdles, curlers, tampons, all of these things that, you know. And their bras. And their bras. And so it was known as the bra burning. That's that's the origin of that term. Right. Because also the media played it up. Right. You know, like there wasn't any burning. And so they're trying to make it seem like these women are crazy. Uh, some people actually took offense to that term bra burners. But Flo kind of liked it because she thought it made them sound tougher than they actually were because they hadn't actually burned anything that day. But in her, in the typical theatrical style of protest that she loved, they were carrying a sign that said, can makeup cover the wounds of our oppressor? And welcome to the Miss America cattle auction. They also crowned a sheep Miss America <laughs> outside of the building. And they, they denounced the entire thing as being demeaning and reinforcing patriarchal stereotypes and identities that were forced on women to be beautiful and soft and parade around for male attention. And obviously, this is still a problem. But now white and black women can be objectified on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Equality. Right. So in 1969, T. Grace Atkinson was the first person to formally leave the organization like with a letter of resignation stating that she didn't agree with the way they were doing things. And Florence left shortly after that. They both disagreed with the lack of progress beyond a white feminist agenda. I think there's something to be said about them disagreeing with the modesty that tended to be apparent in this group. Florence was always criticized for her outfits and they were constantly trying to be silenced for their ideas in intersection about intersectionality. And obviously Florence had always been silenced, but now she had an ally in T. Grace Atkinson. Exactly. So they sort of um, struck out on their own and persisted. And in in the way that Flo used to host big parties at her apartment when she was in her law school days, trying to build what is she called an, an old white boy network. Oh, yeah. Um, they continued to host people at her apartment. But rather than that, they were full Rather than full of men, they were full of radical young feminists and other community organizers. So Flo and Tigres really launched the new like women's liberation movement um, from her from her apartment. Yeah. And we should talk because you mentioned Florence's outfits. Right. Uh, you can't see any photos that we have of her. But you should look her up. She did have a very distinct and unique style all her own. She was really into wearing um, cowboy hats mm -hmm. and like little vests and stuff I that she would it. have covered in buttons, you know, like anti-war and whatever protest buttons. And uh, she often carried a briefcase full of like flyers and stuff like that to hand out. She uh, was just ready to go, man. Yeah, she was. And she was, I guess her signature thing with, is that she had really long red painted fingernails. Mm -hmm. Like she was just really colorful and... Right. Um, she dressed differently than a lot of the other feminists did at that time because she was an older woman at this point. But she's, she didn't, you know, wear like muted colors and business mm -hmm. skirts. Even in court, she would wear pantsuits, which separated her from the rest of the, the women practicing at that mm -hmm. time. Definitely. What comes up next is a very interesting event. And it's going to, you know, be pretty uh, inclusive of both all movements, black and white movements. This is the... Abramowitz versus Lefkowitz, uh, Lefkowitz, Lefkowitz case. This event is terribly important for women's rights. This trial was the first to include testimonies of women 
who had had legal abortions. Before this, only physicians were able to comment on these abortions, which were usually men. Yeah, and this this tactic of using um, women to give firsthand accounts of their own experiences was utilized a few years later in the 1973 Roe v. Wade case. So during this case, uh, there were a few instances of Flo actually arguing with the judge respectfully. They have some of the court minutes and you can read it and it's it's kind of interesting. So not only did the judge silence, he, he tried to silence the women that wanted to come and speak about their abortions. And there's a very interesting conversation between the judge and Flo because he's saying it's not appropriate and Flo saying, it's unfortunate that you don't think the accounts of these women are important in a case about the accounts of these women kind of thing. And in addition to this, he also commented on the way that she dressed. She was one of the few women up until this point who chose to wear pantsuits in the courtroom and he commented on it and she had a rebuttal. Uh, also one of the few women in courtrooms, you know, because there weren't that many women lawyers at this point, female lawyers. She organized protests outside of the courtroom during the trial because she had pointed out before that we talked about that it didn't matter what happened in the courtroom. She realized if nobody knew about it, even if there's progress, it wasn't going to get talked about. Right. So she invited the media in, had protests, made sure that it couldn't get silenced. And this is when her and Black Power came head to head once again. As the movement was criticizing birth control as a black genocide, stating that they want to give black women birth control to control the black population. Keep in mind that the heads of the black movements were almost always men. And Flo argued that there indeed was a black genocide. Her take on it was that black adult women were the victims because they were the ones dying from legal abortions. Yeah, and she argued that having access to birth control and to safe legal abortion gave black women more agency to be in control of their own bodies, you know. So also what was happening during this time, you know, Flo reaching out through the media, they went on this radio station to criticize a 1965 report called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, written by um, a white man in government, which was extremely racist. It was a white man trying to kind of explain why black people were poor without claiming mm. accountability of racism and mm. that he was literally one of the people that did so. Yeah. The book points out or calls out that the matriarchal structure that can happen in black families, this is according to the text, um, hinders them from excelling socially and politically. Again, the report is very racist. Yeah, and what they fail to notice is that if there are families where the men in the family are not present, it's probably because they've been arrested on some right. ridiculous charge. Right. Or killed. Yeah. It was immediately attacked by the black community as patronizing, racist, the cultural bias involved. And although it seemed like he was trying to get white people to understand that by not giving black people jobs, that they were more inclined to be poor, literally just kind of blaming black women, black strong mothers who took control of their families as being problem. Yeah. Blaming people for their own oppression. Oy vey. So Flo discussed how it wasn't about black women not having children, the idea of birth control, um, but giving, you know, black women the chance to become educated first. 
She went on to say that it wasn't very realistic for a black family to be able to support a large family anyways, considering the chances of being well off, um, especially if you're an activist, was not very likely for a black family, especially during this time. I think of it as, you know, her pushing women to wait until they get a college degree to have a family and that the less children you have, the less mouths you have to feed. It's kind of, again, like that now uh, with all people. The Black Power movement was unfortunately uh, very gender conforming, according to Flo's remarks of visiting meetings where women don't share their thoughts and ideas. You brought this up earlier when men were like, why are you wearing mini skirts? So this is also um, a time where she went after the Catholic Church because, you know, during these cases of abortion, the Catholic Church was putting money into politics to try to get legislation passed that prevented abortions, which she rightfully argued meant that they should not get the tax breaks right because they're involved in politics yeah if there's Again, a separation of church and state still you happening keep to that separation day. absolutely so after this case she uh and diane shoulder uh, another feminist activist uh published some of the testimonies of the 300 women who had been part of that new york case in a book called uh, abortion rap this was in 1971 most of them were from women who had suffered from botched back alley abortions. They had people talking about the women who had died from these kind of things. And um, some of them gave testimony not in court, but actually just to flow in her apartment. And she didn't list their names because she wanted to protect them from retribution by their employers or other people in their community or their families. Um, so some of them were anonymous, but she just published firsthand accounts of, of right. what had happened before restrictive abortion laws were repealed. Obviously, Flo was spending a lot of time back in the courtroom uh, taking on very important cases. It was H. Rap Brown, then Valerie Solanas, then the abortion cases, and she came back for the Black Power movements. They were gaining attention from supporters. It was also gaining more and more surveillance from the FBI, as we mentioned. Uh, members were being illegally stopped in their cars. Their homes were raided. They were being arrested randomly. And in the end, they were trying to intimidate these people and get them off the streets, as again we mentioned. Some people were killed as well. Oh, a lot of people were killed. Forgetting that black people have been treated this way their whole lives and have been inconvenienced at the hands of white men and women, you know, they're ready to fight back. It's kind of, uh, they think that just because it's getting worse that they'll stop. And if anything, it's just giving them more incentive. Absolutely. To defend themselves. Right. You know, she spent a lot of time defending these people. She was putting the media on blast during these trials, calling out the increasingly obvious injustices towards civil rights activists brought in on trial. Because again, as the activism and movements became stronger, more people were being imprisoned. She called the media press pigs. We see this now in the coverage of Black Lives Matter movements, obviously. Right. She also directly criticized President Hoover publicly for the misuse of funds. So what was happening is the administration was shoveling money into the FBI to survey all of these activists. But this is also during the time that drugs were being introduced heavily into this country um, during the time of Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this drug problem that eventually happened that they all saw happening slowly could have been prevented. So several members of these accused activists not only were given an enormous bail amount, furthering Flo's realization of this um, bias, but often they were put into solitary confinement during the trial 
which for women as well as men, it was just very dangerous because there's no witnesses. Right. A lot of activists have come out talking about all the rape that happens because right. it's intimidation. Yeah. Unfortunately, Flo wasn't um, successful in all of these cases, as we know, seeing that a lot of uh, these activists are in jail still or have died in jail. And we're talking about all like specifically bl- Black Panthers. Right. And- For example, H. Rep. Brown, although he was found innocent in those one cases, they eventually put him in. They found something that they could uh, charge him on and he was in jail. He died in jail within the past few years. This happened with a lot of people. So in addition to what she was doing with the Black Power movements and defending Black Panthers, she was also working on the women's liberation movement. So right around this time in the early 70s, she met Gloria Steinem, which is a name you're probably very familiar with. Um, Steinem first saw Flo on a television show talking, frankly, about women's sexual experiences. She said she'd never really heard women talk in public about sex in a truthful way. So she called up the station to find out more about these ladies. And she was particularly interested in Flo's, like, sort of brazen like say what she thinks kind of um, right. way of dealing with things so the two of them became friends and uh steinem who had been on the lecturing circuit uh, at universities across the country her partner dorothy pittman hughes who was an african-american woman um she became pregnant in 1970 and flo agreed to fill in for her on the lecture circuit because they really wanted it to be inclusive and give multiple viewpoints because flo was uh, a lot older than steinem and had been in the feminist movement for longer. She brought really a new dimension to their lectures, especially because she continued to push for intersectionality and cooperation between different movements, which had been sort of pushed to the background, at least in the way the media was covering second wave feminism. Uh, So in 1971, the 26th Amendment was passed, allowing 18 and 20 year olds to vote for the first time, which introduced 11 people. Oops. 11 million people. Which introduced 11 million people into politics. Flo was inspired by these young activists during her meetings and parties at her house, which we had mentioned. And they seemed to be more radical than the now members who refused to embrace progress and inclusiveness and what they were fighting for. This is when Flo, in addition to Shirley Chisholm, uh, created the Feminist Party. So Chisholm had been an early member of NOW. And feminist support from that group and others had actually helped her to become the first black woman elected to Congress. Flo's feminist party supported her running as a Democratic candidate in the 1972 presidential election. She went up against George McGovern for the nomination. And the feminist party also helped mobilize and get women down to the 1972 Democratic National Convention being held in Miami. So for comparison... In 1968, just 16% of the delegates that were there were women. And in the 1972 convention, 40% of the attendees were women. And that had been largely in part um, helped by this feminist party. Uh, They also helped form the National Women's Political Caucus to handle women's issues in politics and bring more of them to the forefront of media. Again, Kennedy was on the front lines of the campaign trying to help with the nomination using every avenue she knew and was extremely critical of the media, again, on their one-sided coverage of Chisholm's candidacy. Basically, most of the focus was on George McGovern right, as a white man. So this is also when, unfortunately, Flo starts to get sort of pushed out of the mainstream feminist movement. 
um, because of her tendency to consistently bring up larger issues of oppression beyond just the narrow band of white feminist issues she was labeled as being like kind of reactionary and like too out there and drawing attention away from what their intended message was right so i have absolutely no problem saying that this is not a coincidence that the closer she got to putting black representation god forbid a woman in politics a black woman she was you know silenced in the media right and so and she was sort of silenced in the feminist movement as well right. because she was also an older woman and um you know by this point she's in her late 50s early 60s and the feminist movement had sort of traded in these like really young and beautiful and slender like whatever glory Steinem types yeah exactly what's interesting and really 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 um admirable about Flo is that this is around the time that she she was kind of butting heads with every movement because she was really fed up with the exclusiveness of all of them. So she was obviously criticizing white feminist movements for not incorporating black women. They refused to talk about the war. They were just very specific about their agenda. Uh, she was critical of the black power movements for not criticizing the war as much and also for being a male-led group. And they really did oftentimes um, silence women because they were about their agenda of black men entering the field. Yeah, black women had their place for sure, but they were almost like pulled in between two movements. Yeah, Flo and was, a, was a leader of, of right. like a black feminist movement for sure. But again, overall and throughout her life, what she stressed more than anything was intersectionality we are all dealing with the same oppressor and in you know at the end of the day if you can't help each other what what's the point you know right just because the white woman movement changes things doesn't mean it's any better for black people exactly yeah and it, it's this, it's the same thing now right as as long as you know one group is being oppressed or marginalized then nobody's free right Flo um passed away in 2000 in New York. At the age of 84. Right. Following, you know, on paper, it was because of these injuries that we had talked about that she dealt with her whole life. Uh, she lived a long life. she And she packed a lot into it, right. too. She had the Flo Kennedy show following the height of the civil rights movements. You know, she just kept solidifying her ideas of having everyone's voices heard. Yeah. She never gave up on, on activism or protesting. She was super into it. And you can actually watch that show. We might have mentioned it in the first one, but it bears repeating. If you go to archive.org, you can watch all, there's like 200 episodes of the it's Flo Kennedy show, which was on through the 80s and early 90s. It's very interesting. She's quite a character. <laughs> Why are we covering her? Why did we bring her up to you at all? Because she's amazing. Um, as we mentioned in the beginning, the only reason we know much about her um, at all is, is because of Cherie Randolph. You know, Cherie went to her family and her family told her that a lot of her documents had been destroyed um, with the fear that it would be too vulnerable in the wrong hands, considering how many black power members were murdered or incarcerated. Cherie also describes that, so why I mentioned the D FBI surveillance, is they had uh, roughly like three decades of information on her and that's actually how Cherie really found out about things like her clothing and her hairstyles and very specific things because they took very detailed records 
again, why are these resources being used to categorize everything about these activists? And also, in a in a 60 Minutes interview, uh, I couldn't actually find the year that this happened, but a former vice president of now, this woman named Lucy Commissar, she dismissed Flo's involvement with the women's movement and with their organization because what she said is that Flo had been focused on black power and workers' rights and LGBT rights and sex worker rights. She was later in her life. And so she she wasn't really counted as being like a, an early leader in this movement, which to me personally, complete bullshit. Let right. me just say that. Um, I don't know if it's because they thought she was they they claim that she was like too performative in the way that she protested. And I don't know if maybe they were embarrassed by that or something, but she did a lot to draw attention and fought a lot of really intense court cases to bring attention to these things that were in the darkness. So. Right. So she was um, one of the main lawyers, again, just reiterating all of the great things that she did that nobody talks about. She was involved in making uh, the first legislations of um, abortion being legal. She helped shape protection for entertainers against the um, monopoly and the cheating industry. She helped the first black woman run for a presidential nomination. And she also was very, very important in helping all of these, you know, young women become aware and socially involved, you know, Young women are also very aware of the moderacy. So, you know, keep in mind that these older women that had, again, organized now, they were still older white women. Mostly, yeah. Right. And so these women being brought up in the 70s, which is a very colorful and more open time in general, saw Flo as their role model, you Mm -hmm. know. So those are just a couple of the things that she did. She did a lot more really important stuff yeah so and we highly recommend that you again look up uh sheree m randolph's book florence flo kennedy the life of a black radical feminist black sorry black feminist radical it came out actually just fairly recently in 2015 right so you should definitely check it out yeah and check out the show well we're going to uh play some excerpts of it right now uh, so enjoy that. Check them out. And thanks for listening. Thank you so about much. about Flo. This episode was written and engineered by Amanda Font and me, Megan Maurer. Um, thank you again to Azua for providing our theme music. And, you know. We'll see you next time. Check it out for the next woman. Fight the power. Fight the power. Smash the patriarchy. One, two, three. Kennedy here, and I'm here with Elena Steinberg-Cobb. She just got an award from us, Backpack, which is sort of family stuff, insider award from one to another. But she is here just because she's great and she's a celebrity. And we tried to think what to put on as her credit. We thought we'd put a theater owner, and she is. We thought we'd put an arranger, which she is. We thought we'd put a composer, which she is. We thought we'd put a poem, which poet. I have a poem of hers stuck down here where you can't see it because Don won't let me put anything on the table. And she's everything. And she is, in addition to all of that, a mom 
with one child who's okay and another one who behaves the way she wants to, which means she pulls her mommy's hair and isn't that great, but we're going to make her civilize whether or not she has a birthday coming up. We'll tell you more about that. Anyway, my guest is Elena Steinberg. You will be seeing her because she's also a video producer, and we'll do a lot of reciprocal stuff. Okay, Elena, what can we tell them that is worth telling? Well, I think I started out uh, producing records right. and watching a lot of... That's before Jimmy Cobb or after Jimmy before Cobb? Before Jimmy Cobb. Uh-huh. Uh, for about 10 or 12 years. Really? And I produced some very interesting records with uh, David Liebman and Lookout Farm. Oh, that's right. David Steinberg called Dave. you. Oh, he did? I had a message from Jimmy when I was talking to oh. Jamie. I forgot to tell you. But I would have remembered. Good. I'm well, sure. Okay, anyway. And I was very lucky to be on the road with such great uh, Miles Davis. musicians as Elvin Jones, I was going to say, and Miles Davis. And um, I watched a lot of marvelous m music. And when Jimmy and I went into the studio to do his own uh, record, we decided to bring in some cameras and make a television presentation of this idiom of music, which is jazz, which I found was always done in a very sort of rush fashion and a very low budget right. and was never given the packaging and to the respect, bring in. Really. And absolutely the respect, and, or, and the money wasn't spent on it, basically. You tell about the one that I'm so crazy about so nobody else can hear right. it. So we did a television special. And uh, we got a very fine rhythm section. Uh, Jimmy with Walter Booker, who played for a long time Big with Cannonball name. Adderley. Big name. And Larry Willis, who uh, worked with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And Freddie Hubbard, who we don't have to Big speak names. from. So. Big names. And uh, Bill Cosby. Oh, yes. I thought he was really good. That came really for good. a visit. And it, we featured Gregory Hines singing. That's right. That's those. right. That's right. And so we, we made sort of a music uh, How many minutes special. is that, Elena? It's a half an hour. It is, 28 yeah. minutes. Uh -huh. And it, so, uh, beyond the music, we had a painter, uh, Eugene Gregan, Sumi, Japanese painting, mm -hmm. who painted portraits of the musicians while they were You're kidding. playing. So I didn't realize The whole that. record was sort of a uh, making of the music. for us for a lot of art. Right. And uh, ultimately, we married a tape of a uh, another artist Isaac Abrams who did airbrush and animated airbrushing and we so we made a collage of visual uh, as well as the music and the music was the point rather than in what is it that I saw on the video when I was at your house in Woodstock Elena lives at the top of a very big hill in Woodstock <laughs> right and today tell what happened when you saw Serena today well, as I was about to come to, to town, my one daughter managed to lock my keys in the car. Yes, she's so a five and a half So that took me an extra two hours to get right. down the mountain. And then when I got down the mountain, I saw these three little children running through this pouring rainstorm with no shoes and hair flying wild. Wet to the skin. Completely drenched. And the little one looked vaguely familiar. <laughs> one of your kids. There was my oldest daughter. Eight years old. Right. And she so, was there. What did so, she say? So I rolled the window down and she said, Mom, give me money. <laughs> so I was like, did you give her? Say, yeah. <laughs> I figured they needed some soup, you know, uh -huh. something warm. Huh.